from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. What's good, Open Floor Globe? This is your host for the episode, Chris Herring. Uh, our friend Michael the Podpina is off taking a well-deserved break for the week um, after a really long season, which we appreciate you Staying with us and rocking with us through. Um, hope you're getting a slight breather now like we're trying to. Um, there's still a lot of stuff going on, obviously, between the Olympics, the WNBA season being on a pause because of the Olympics. And later on this week, we'll have the NBA draft, which we'll have more on uh, probably through podcast form. And obviously, a lot of stories on SI.com, uh, which made it a pretty good break, in my opinion, to kind of take a step back to something that is as relevant as it'll ever be right now after what happened last week with the NBA Finals. Um, basically thought, what better time than to have on someone that knows Giannis inside and out? Mirren Fader has maybe the best uh, timed book ever, uh, a biography on Giannis that I've had the pleasure to read now twice, uh, which is titled The Improbable Rise of an MVP. Uh, Giannis, The Improbable Rise of an MVP by Mirren Fader, who works at The Ringer and is an award-winning feature writer over there who does fantastic work. Mirren, how are you? I know you have to be somewhat exhausted having had anywhere between 8 million and 9 million interviews over the last week to try to promote this thing. Um, Thank you so much for making time for us uh, as you do that. Oh, man. Thank you for having me. You are one of my favorite writers, and uh, I'm very happy to be here. Well, thank you so much. Um, So again, I I know that this is great timing. Mike Mike Breen mentioned you on uh, the telecast the other night during the finals, which made me happy for you. Um, And then, you know, out of nowhere, they go down from being 2-0. The Bucks go down 2-0 and then come back and win a series that Giannis is coming back from the hyperextended knee and plays out of his mind and drops a 50 ball in game six, obviously, to close it out. Um, I, I guess having read the book now, my question for you, we'll kind of start from the end, is what what would you have done differently with this book if you'd known that Giannis was going to win the championship a couple of weeks before it came out? Because I'm sure your publishers now are probably going to want you to do an epilogue really soon assuming that this thing sells out and that it uh, it has a su- success that they're hoping. But what would you write now, either as the beginning or the end to the book, the beginning or the end to the book, given that the Bucks just won a title? And I feel like it answered so many questions that we would have had about Giannis in the years to come had he not done that. 
Oh my God. I mean, I'm kicking myself. I'm just like, <laughs> God, you know, why didn't I know? Or why didn't we go? You know, because as you know, the book was timed when it was timed because we didn't know if he was going to stay in Milwaukee or not. So right. for me, I've always had in my head, like the ending of the book has got to be whether he stays or whether he's going to go. Um, but this now brings it such in, into such broader perspective. It's not just does he stay or does he go? It's that it's the consequence of staying. It's that you made this commitment and choice and you are rewarded for it. It's just something that you never could have dreamed up. And the image that is really sticking with me that, you know, if I end up writing something is the image of him sitting on the chair after winning and tears streaming down his face. Um, because as you know, from the book, one of the things that I found in my reporting was how as a child, he very much openly would cry. If he was disappointed in his game, he would cry. If he felt like he didn't do good enough, he would cry. And then he gets to Milwaukee in the NBA and Larry Drew, the coach, and Robert Hackett, the strength coach, observed tears coming out of his eyes publicly. And they had to tell him, look, we don't, we don't cry in the NBA. You can't do that here. <laughs> and then we fast forward to this championship and I watch him let the emotion come out and and I love it so much because it really says everything you need to know about him. Deeply thoughtful, deeply sensitive, deeply vulnerable. And somebody you're witnessing somebody achieve all of their dreams at the most important point of their lives. So, you know what, if I had to do it again, I would totally end with that image of him, him crying there and letting that emotion out. Yeah. And, and you make the good point. You, you said when he was younger that it was something that the emotion kind of spilled out of him. But it was like those first couple of years in the league, too, um, as he was still <laughs> growing into his body, as he was growing into the role that I think we see now as the leader of that team. Um, but, yeah, I mean, he, he made himself very, very vulnerable. And, you know, it became less and less. Certainly um, after the passing of his father, you kind of make the point in the book a few times that he kind of hardened a little bit and felt like he had to be strong for everybody else. But um, I was in the, the media room last week when he was kind of letting go. of, And you can hear it in his voice when, he, when it's kind of going to be this eruption of tears a little bit. Um, anytime he talks about his family, he just becomes uh, overwhelmingly emotional. And I think when you read through your book, you get a sense of kind of why that that is. So anyway, w walk me through what you, you've written some of the best features I think that any of us have read the last few years on LaMelo Ball, on any number of, of athletes um, that have kind of been at a crossroads or kind of at a really important phase in their life. What stood out to you aside from just his sheer celebrity um, in, in this situation for you to say, I want to write my first book on this subject? Yeah, well, thank you for the kind words. I mean, I think for me, the story has to be deeply human. You know, it has to be somebody that is relatable, that there's certain things as different as their circumstances might be. There's certain traits about them that we find endearing or interesting or we can relate to. You know, a lot of us understand death. A lot of us understand poverty. A lot of us understand um, joy and gratitude. And that spirit of his just felt so attractive for a book. I think at the time that I profiled him and his brother Alex for Bleacher Report, which is where this book came out of, Giannis hadn't yet won his first MVP. And I think at the time, people were really only, for the most part, I would say, as far as national media, were only highlighting his athleticism. And it was just so much Greek freak, Greek freak. But I felt like when I spent the day with them, that his mind was so undercovered. The vulnerability of him was so undercovered these uh, more nurturing parts and tender, softer parts of him were undercovered. We're only focusing on his physical gifts. And, you know, I think it was a real miss by the NBA to not highlight his journey more because I think it's a story that should be told everywhere. And it was just simply undercovered. I just thought, how do we know so little about this budding superstar? All we know is trinkets on the street becomes one of the best players in the league, nothing in between. And so you know, I've been trying to write a book for a long time and um, it just seemed natural. I think the, the point that um, really sold it for me when I was in the family's basement and I was talking to Alex, the youngest brother, and like three hours had gone by and he gets a call on his phone and he starts talking in Greek. And, you know, I don't know what they're talking about. And um, 
afterwards I was like, who is that? And he was like, oh, it's my brother. And I'm thinking like, which one, you know? And then he starts like smiling, like almost embarrassed. He was like, oh, it's Giannis. And I was like, isn't he like, <laughs> I was like, isn't he like upstairs, you know? Cause he was in the home that day too. And he was like, yeah, he just wanted to check on me, make sure I was doing okay in my interview. <laughs> and I just thought my heart melted first of all. And I was like, okay, there's something really awesome about this. And how come we don't know about it? Yeah. I mean, that speaks volumes. And I, I think, uh, being a friend of yours, I think I know what you went through to do this book. I, I remember texting you, which I think is is cool. It was not cool for you in the moment. You were not excited about it in the moment. But, you know, having talked to you about, you know, kind of when it became known to you that the Bucks had kind of given the directive that, you know, no one's allowed to speak to you for this book. And so on the one hand that you're dealing with that on the one side, but on the other hand, you're you're like in Giannis's home conducting interviews with multiple members of his family so that the access for this book is, is pretty incredible considering that when you first started it, you know, Giannis was in a situation where um, I could imagine the Bucks would not have been the only team that wanted to kind of make sure that reporters were relatively hands off at a time where they're trying to get this man to lock into a supermax contract. You don't want anything that is devastating or that looks bad or that is critical of him to kind of come out and be this bombshell right as he's about to hit that stage. So um, you, you should be proud from that standpoint, kind of how much and how far into this you were able to dig considering how hands off they probably wanted you to be for that. Um, I wanted to ask you specifically about what you just mentioned with regards to the story that I, I, I still feel like is undercovered less so now that you've written this book, but um, whenever I talk to people about LeBron, it's always about how big a face of the league he's been for so long now. And at some point, the league is going to have to turn the page on that. Who knows? Maybe LeBron will be there until he's 45. Um, maybe by that point, him and Bronny can kind of have, you know, be on the same team and do like a Ken Griffey Jr., Ken Griffey Sr. sort of thing. Who knows? But, you know, assuming that doesn't happen, uh, the league is going to have to find someone else, you know, and I think there's been a long conversation now. Is it Luka? Is it Giannis? Uh, Nikola Jokic just won this last MVP, although I don't get the impression he's going to be the guy that gets marketed around the way everybody else, um, you know, the other people have been in that conversation. Kawhi is, is obviously more quiet, but is a superstar. Kevin Durant has been on that stage before, but has been injured. Um, and it's mind-boggling to me that Giannis kind of isn't an obvious choice, Um comes from a smaller market, which you, seems like there'd be more upside to kind of marketing that more. Um, a guy that very clearly wants to be in one place, um, certainly now after the Supermax. I think Steph is obviously a guy that kind of fits that criteria as well um, and is someone that they have been able to market around before as well. Um, but it's crazy to me given how much Giannis has kind of – I mean, it, if we talk about uphill battles, this man has had – we always talk about Mount Everest in America. What's the tallest mountain in the world? I'm not sure. I should know better. Geography I don't know. Wise. But I mean, <laughs> like, <enough. laughs> that's the hill that this man has right. had to climb when you consider, I mean, and your book goes into really, really deep, like kind of heart-wrenching detail about exactly, you know, the NFL has, you know, I think Kurt Warner has like a documentary or a movie coming out about him now. I can't remember yeah. who's playing him in that movie. In my book that I have coming out, relatively soon you know john starks worked at safeway which is kind of the kurt warner sort of story again Giannis, i mean his story it's not to say that you're sitting there trying to weigh which one is is harder or tougher or sadder but um there was a lot about Giannis's story that's not glamorous that's you know not something that you smile and laugh about it was just hard stuff um and i i guess I, I have like 14 things that I took notes on that I thought were really, really stunning. But you have one detail in the book where you talk about one of Giannis's teammates that, you know, Giannis did not open up to many people in part because of the family situation and how focused he had to be on trying to sell things to try to help his family. He did open up to one teammate in particular and invited that teammate over. And that teammate was also relatively impoverished. But then that teammate got there and was like, I thought I was impoverished. And then he saw what what Giannis's family didn't have and how empty Giannis's room was and how Giannis had this vision for what his room could be someday once he got more. Um, what was, I mean, we've talked about some of this, but what to you, if you had to like pick one or two of the things that was just most striking to you about how rough his family really had it or how rough he had it as a child, 
What would you pick out kind of in those early years just about when you heard it, when you were reporting it out, what you were just stunned by? Yeah, um, moments of fear and anxiety. You know, the the word anxiety, we didn't really talk about during when Giannis was growing up, but that is what he dealt with. He would be with this friend that you're referring to, whose name is Ramon Rana. And because this neo-Nazi group was um, very prevalent in this area and they would go after migrants, they would chase them, stab them, kill them, um, that Giannis had this anxiety that he would see them or the police, he would have to completely change courses and run the other way. And Rana, this friend, seeing that anxiety up close was just very striking. Um, Another detail, you mentioned his room. I always found that so tender that Giannis was not ashamed that he had so little. He just kept telling his friend, one day I'm going to have a home full of books. Hmm. One day I'm going to have a television. One day I'm going to have a PlayStation. He was always dreaming. Um, Just the moments of of fainting. His teammates did not know how difficult things were and how little food he had. You know, none of them were rich. This is this is a working class neighborhood for a lot of them. Even though they were white, they were not necessarily well off. You know, the Greece is recovering from an economic recession that hurt white Greeks as well. Of course, they were doing better because they didn't have to deal with flagrant racism and discrimination everywhere they went. But still, they didn't have much either. And I think the most harrowing scene was one practice. Giannis just faints on the basketball court. And his coaches and his teammates are kicking themselves for not helping him earlier. But Giannis was the type of guy that would never ask for help because he didn't. He was proud, and he didn't want anyone to think that he wasn't doing okay. Just learning that he would give his portions to his youngest brothers and pretend that he had eaten. Just learning that his youngest brothers were so afraid of looking like they needed help that they would always give gracious teammates the receipts from when they said go get a Gatorade whatever you want and they would bring back the change in the receipt it's just details like that that just really tell you everything you need to know but I will say Chris like um, and we've talked about this before too it's like sometimes there is such a tendency to zoom in on the trauma that there is so sometimes people do not take the time and space to zoom out on the joy and my hope was for every difficult moment you also saw really tender portrayals of love and happiness you know when you grow up poor you don't necessarily know at first that things are bad that's just your normal you're just used to sharing one souvlaki with four people you don't necessarily register that this is bad or awful him and his brothers would make a joke out of anything when they went to go to these upscale beaches to sell you know, one of my favorite scenes in the book is them going to the beach and playing in the water and the sand and just having fun together. Giannis had a lot of joy growing up. It's just it's not the sexier subject that people have picked up on his story or maybe they just don't know. But, you know, it was really intentional on my part to make sure that there were these moments of love and happiness as well. Yeah. I mean, one of the the scenes that stood out to me along those lines was one where um, I think it was him and a couple of his teammates that went and essentially hiked up to the top of, mm-hmm. I think it was in Athens that they, they went to the top, basically the top of a, almost like a mountain and just kind of overlooked everything. And it was kind of a look at what all was out there, the rest of the world, the rest of the country, um, hoping to be able to be taken to those places someday and have more to look at and more to do and just kind of a carefree attitude, which I don't think he's ever so far removed from that to where he doesn't have a care in the world. I don't think you can be given kind of the way he grew up and what he saw growing up, but I, you know, as close to that as you can get and, but also still having a hunger to know that, you know, and, and you had this refrain in your book a couple of times that what if we were to wake up at some point and not have this anymore. And so kind of recognizing where you come from and not taking it for granted. So I, I, I do think that there's that balance in the book, which is, it's difficult to do. Um, you mentioned in your last response something that I, I definitely wanted to get back to because I think as a black man, what I think I appreciate most about a book, and even if a black author had tackled this book, it, it wouldn't be guaranteed that it would be covered the way that you covered it. Um, you do not go easy whatsoever on Greek society in this book. Um, I mean, and quite frankly, Giannis um, at times struggled to find his voice if he was looking for it to really criticize kind of what he came from. He obviously was very proud um, 
to be from Greece, to represent Greece. Obviously, he has a Nigerian background as well. Um, but there's a lot of ugliness. And, I mean, you mentioned it, racism and essentially white supremacist groups and right-wing groups um, in Greece that um, weren't even shy about even asking the people that would dare to help Giannis's family, why are you helping these black kids? Um, mm-hmm. As if there was something wrong with that. And, and God bless some of the people that did step in to help or in some cases didn't help as much as they could have because they felt like it would have pulled Giannis away from basketball if he had given Giannis a job or something like that, which I thought was really striking as well. Um, I mean, you you spend entire pages, entire sections of this book kind of calling out exactly what this is, laying out exactly what this is and how ugly it is, how hypocritical it, it is for a country to, on the one hand, claim pride for what Giannis has become, but on the other hand, not help or really turn a blind eye or kind of talk themselves into thinking that, well, Giannis never complained about how racist it is, so it couldn't have been that racist. Um, What was behind your decision to kind of be so clear-throated about the way you approached this in the book? Was it strictly through your reporting? Was it something that you knew even before you'd started interviewing people that you wanted to make a big emphasis uh, because, again, Giannis did not really emphasize this much. His brother Thanasis did um, mm-hmm. and has started to more. Giannis has kind of found his voice on it more. But also, as you note in the book, that um, among the times that Giannis has done it, some of that stuff has kind of vanished from the Internet, where it's not as easy to pull up and find, which maybe speaks to Giannis's still maybe slight discomfort in kind of voicing some of those issues. How did you decide to make such a big deal of this in the book? Yeah, so over the last couple of years, I've done a bit of traveling internationally for stories. And when I'm in these places like Australia or Lithuania covering, you know, for example, LaMelo Ball, it's very clear that there's an entire racial dynamic that is undercovered and under discussed. These are black players in majority white countries. And you hear the things that people are saying about them behind the scenes that are not being said. And, oh, I'm so happy this person's here. Giannis's story, you know, I knew a bit of history about Greece coming in and and just knowing that um, there's a discrepancy between what's happened, what he thinks has happened, what he knows has happened, what is reported that has happened. It's all kind of swept under the rug. And there's a problem with making a fairy, quote, fairy tale out of a story And that is a label assigned by majority white writers that completely glosses over the reality of the situation. If you look at Greece and the way their citizenship works, if you are a person of color and you are born there, but your parents migrated, you are not considered Greek. So I knew that going in. And I knew that, yes, there's wonderful people that have helped Giannis. And I found more. I found a white godmother that completely was so yeah. kind named Marietta. Nobody knows her name. I found a lot of people people don't know about. But you do a disservice to the story if you don't tell it accurately and truthfully, which is we can hold both of these ideas in our heads at the same time. Right. But there were super kind people and there were super racist people. And so you want to tell a story accurately and truthfully. And to do that, you have to acknowledge that just because somebody says we don't have a race problem doesn't mean you don't have a race problem. And it becomes very clear when I talk to these Greek people that that basically I don't want to use the word hang themselves out to dry. But, you know, you let them speak and their ignorance unfolds on the page. Even people that are connected to Giannis, you did that with a couple of them. Yeah. Even people that love him have mm-hmm. blind spots because that's how racism works. And seeing their love and their blind spots in the same book was important because it's part of the narrative. So there's two strands I wanted to cover, childhood racism and current day racism. I was at Bleacher Report when TNT did this famous interview with Giannis, and he doesn't give a lot of media. And so he said something like, it's really hard for people of color to get opportunities in my home country. And he was called every racist name in the book from prominent politicians. And I chart um, this journey of not only all the racism that's currently there, like current murals of him being desecrated from things that have nothing to do with that interview. That's just no matter how far Giannis ascends, he will just always be black to them and not Greek. And to show that being famous or 
being prideful about your country and representing them in the most best way does not shield you from racism. And so I wanted to chart both the childhood and as as he grows older and personally how he contends with these very complicated things and, and that he is a private person and that he is still reconciling that trauma earlier and, and dealing with it now. Finally, I know I'm going on about this, but one thing that I really wanted to make sure that I did was talk to other Black um, children of migrants that were friends with Giannis growing up and chart their journeys from childhood together with Giannis, all dreaming of basketball superstardom. And then getting back to their narrative at the end of the book and showing how, hey, one of the kids that looked up to Giannis that was Black and Nigerian and wanted to be in the NBA is still in line to get citizenship. And he shows up every morning at 4 a.m. and cannot get papers, you know. So I'm charting the journeys of these people to show that that could have been Giannis had he not had this incredible luck, had he not had the Greek government fast track his citizenship, he could have had the fate of any number of his former friends. And, you know, one of my favorite quotes was from one of those friends. This guy's name is Etinosa Everbanagi, and he was a wonderful basketball player who played for Panathinaikos himself, but he didn't have papers and he never got them fast track because he didn't have the size and athleticism that Giannis did. Um, and he said, look, I know that Giannis doesn't need to be a Colin Kaepernick or a Muhammad Ali, but I know he has a platform and I want him to speak up more because there's a lot of us still suffering here. Um, so yeah, I just, you can't, you cannot write a Giannis book without contending with this. And if you do, you do a disservice to his actual life experiences. That, uh, that quote maybe stood out to me as the, the strongest quote in the book. Cause I remember asking you, even as you were reporting this out, um, he has, I mean, a transcendent sort of story. Um, there's no question about that. I mean, multiple people in this book from his brothers to his friends to people that, you know, that are just in the Milwaukee community refer to him as a superhero. And mm -hmm. I often think those are sometimes the most difficult people to write about, particularly at age 24 when you started, you know, how old he was when you started writing this book, that it gets to be difficult, I think, sometimes to write a book about someone that no one has anything bad to say about. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there's not anything bad to say about him, really. But I, because of that, I think I appreciated that you had a quote from someone who is close to him that said, I really do hope or wish that he would kind of develop this part of his voice because this is the stuff that impacts people like him that came up like him that don't have his skill set or don't have his athleticism or his size, mm -hmm. but all the people, this could open doors behind him. And I thought that mm -hmm. was really important. I, I wanted to, to really hit on uh, the part that you just brought up tying to all that which was, I don't know if I'd call it a bombshell, but it was certainly more reporting on it that's been done by anybody so far on the subject. I mean, th this was a team that Giannis plays for that was owned by a U.S. senator um, who would have had connections potentially to help stuff get fast-tracked with Giannis's paperwork, with Giannis's family's paperwork. I mean, you, you said at one point, basically, that um, Giannis was so lonely during that first year in the NBA uh, he never intended to come to the States without his family, really. And I guess the Nasus was here. I actually was covering the Knicks when the Knicks drafted him. Um, but the rest of his family was still in Greece. And so basically Giannis was checking in like every other day, seemingly, <laughs> about when his family would be able to join him. It did eventually happen. And like you said, it, it almost certainly sounds like it was fast-tracked and that it was kind of, whether it was done as a favor or what have you, um, I, I, I guess what you you more or less said that Giannis made it known to his family like if they can't get this figured out I'm coming back home. Yeah. How how realistic was that? How serious? How close do you feel like it actually got to that point? Um, Giannis clearly cares deeply for his family. Always has. Um, he I mean he asked a team staffer to come over and spend the night just because he was feeling so lonely because he didn't want, you know, he, he was, he'd never been away from his family like that. How realistic do you think it was at a certain point that he would have gone back home at a certain point if there hadn't been a fix or, you know, paperwork for his family to come over on a visa? Yeah, I think it was very realistic because when Alex was recounting this to me, um, he was just like, even I was surprised, you know, I didn't think it was that, you know, that he would be willing to do that for us. His brother saw it as like a loyalty thing, you know, that wow. you would give up, that you would give up 
a chance to play in the best league in the world and make millions of dollars for us. Like it, it shocked his brother, you know, and, but it was, it was really hard, you know, when he would get on Skype, you know, all the time with his family and wear these big old earmuffs and look ridiculous. And his brothers be like, what do you have on your ears? Like, what are those? <laughs> um, you know, and Yash like, it's really cold, bro. Like I can't explain it. And, um, you know, and just being like such a fish out of water, like, it was really painful. And, uh, you know, it, it was, it was serious. The family through my reporting got denied their visas twice. Um, and here's the thing. When I interviewed the prime minister, Anthony Samaras, who was the one who granted Giannis his papers in the first place, just two months before the draft, because he knew that he was able to be in the NBA. And that's why that happened. He could have given it to his mother. He could have given it to the brothers. He could have given it to the fathers, but he didn't. And so that really just says all you need to know. You're getting it because you're a basketball player and you can make us look good. I'm not giving it to your mother. I'm not giving it to your father. And, you know, Alex would describe just the tremendous amount of paperwork to me. Like, it's it's just so bureaucratic over there. Like, as soon as you think you're filling out all these papers, they hit you with five more. It's, it's almost like they were trying to make it harder for, for migrants to get citizenship, which is something, of course, we all know. Look at our process in America. It is not easy to sure. become a U.S. citizen. It is not easy to become a Greek citizen. This is worldwide, you know? It's not like, wow, Greece is a racist place. That's that. It's it, Racism is everywhere, and every country has all these loopholes and things to try to prevent migrants from getting citizenship. So again, it's really important to show that and to show that, okay, while we were watching Giannis fall in love with smoothies and show flashes of brilliance and chase down blocks on the court, he's battling this, this really intense thing off the court. And, um, you mentioned like at the beginning, you know, the Bucks really not helping me with this and me having to talk to, you know, so many people from the Bucks through my own connections, which thankfully I did, but it is a love letter to this organization that were there for him through all of these horrible moments. They were, John Hammond was like, I'm doing everything I can to get your family to come here. Joanne Anton, you know, the Senator's assistant, Giannis, I'm working behind the scenes for you. Larry Drew, I know you're lonely. How are you? I'm checking on you. Robert Hackett, you want to just get out, clear your mind, go to the mall. I'm here for you. You know, it. there are so many faceless, nameless people in this organization that cared about Giannis as a human being. And that is also what enabled him to get through these really rough moments. Yeah, absolutely. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club. The wait is over. The shy is back on Paramount Plus, and the stakes have never been higher. Everything changes on the South Side when a new threat comes to power in the Showtime original series from Emmy winner Lena Waithe. Battle lines will be drawn, alliances will shift, and danger lies around every corner, leaving everyone to wonder who they can trust. Visit ParamountPlus.com slash shot to get a 50% discount off the Paramount Plus with Showtime annual plan. Offer ends July 14th. Subscription auto-renews. Restrictions apply. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. I, I want to go back to what we were talking about um, just before this last question as it relates to the other two young men that were teammates with him at one point that 
more or less were in the same situation where their lives could potentially, well, anybody's life at that point could be changed by having documentation. Um, and obviously their lives can be kind of stunted by not having that as well. And, you know, maybe they could have even had the same athletic opportunities if it were for the documentation. Um, it, it's such a unique sort of type of storytelling. This is a book about Giannis. Um, and for entire pages at a time, you were talking about the right wing political parties in Greece. You're talking about people that were teammates of Giannis, where you're going really in depth into their life situation, their life story, their family struggles, their financial struggles. Why did you choose to do it that way where you didn't even two track it, you three tracked it to have two teammates that you looked at their circumstances and kind of laid them side by side with Giannis's? How did you decide to do that? Why did you decide to do that? Because you can't understand how miraculous it is for Giannis to be in the position he is without seeing the alternative. Like that, it, it puts him in stark contrast. It, it shows how lucky he is. It shows, again, not to be annoying, but the title, improbable. The improbability of it is just that. It's all luck. It's, what, what, is the, what are the odds that he's you know five inches taller than his teammate and therefore NBA scouts want him and therefore he gets papers and therefore he gets his family to come over, generational wealth, life completely that, just like that. Like we are all products of luck. Uh, it's not a meritocracy in life. And I think Giannis, because he works so hard, everyone says, well, if you work hard like Giannis, you can ascend. Well, Etinosa, Everbanagi that I talked about worked his ass off. Raman Rana worked his ass off. Doesn't matter. They're not going to get the same chances. And so it's just, it's it's showing again that, you know, we don't live in a meritocracy and we can give Giannis his credit for working so hard and transforming his body and his game and taking advantage of the wonderful opportunities he had. But yes, clearly like he could have been so many other people. I think also, you know, the reason why I love being a writer and the reason why I love long form is because whatever you're writing about, you want people that know nothing about the sport to understand what you're saying. Like for me, I, I picture myself writing for the average reader. I picture myself just people that love storytelling, you know, that will go to a movie to see something because they want to feel seen or heard. They don't have to know the nitty gritty about Giannis's jump shot. We have all that in there. There's stuff on the jumper. Right. There's there's secret meetings in the draft. There's stuff for <laughs> basketball people. Right. You know, there but but for me, I'm a I'm a humanist kind of approach. And so I just I just also think context is important. I don't know about you, but I hadn't heard of Golden Dawn before I embarked on this project. Yeah. Yeah. Neither had I. And as much as I probably need to read about them, I don't have much desire to after Right. Just really horrendous. That, but so Golden Dawn is the one of the. It's basically the the white supremacist organization out there um, that you know as Mirren has in the book. Literally, you know, over the course of Giannis's life and over the course of Giannis becoming a basketball player, I want to say was found. Multiple members of the group were found guilty of having murdered someone. Um, murdered someone that I, I want to say was not even a black person. Was someone that was white, but was a essentially an activist on behalf of groups of color out there, which is just right. nuts uh, and sad and scary, but tells you how present this stuff is and how it's really not far removed. And the idea that even having Giannis's talent and Giannis being from Greece, legitimately from Greece um, makes no difference to these folks. So mm -hmm. anyway, um, one thing I was struck by even last year, Tuesday when he won the title and certainly reading your book um, is how I guess not quickly but how clearly Giannis goes from being happy to be there to make it to this level and then within a couple of years that not being good enough for him anymore and him all of a sudden saying you have a couple anecdotes in the book one relates to Nick Batum uh, one relates <laughs> to Jabari Parker one relates to just kind of, you know, the, the conversation with Kobe or the tweet with Kobe and like just take over the whole damn league. But I mean, he legitimately said in their videos of this, you know, 14 year old baby faced Giannis saying, you know, my goal, my only goal is just to make it to the NBA, how happy he would be with that, how happy he is to watch highlights and hear occasional comparisons between him and Kevin Durant's body type and stuff like that. But he uh, again, maybe not quickly, but somewhat quickly, you know, decides that like he's good enough to just kind of own this league. Um, 
What what do you think kind of prompted that? What moment, what person would you say brought that about for him? I think it was Jabari Parker coming into the organization in 2014 and and people were like, he's going to be the dude, you know, and and you're going to be Robin. And Giannis is like, uh, no, you know, like I, I was here. Okay. I was here during the polar vortex when we won 15 games. <laughs> like I deserve this. I, I had, you know, risking frostbite for this organization. Um, you know, in all seriousness. And he, he just, he would get pushed around like Zach Randolph and Carmelo Anthony were two of my favorite interviews for this book because they could see this fighting spirit in him. Okay. He was so flimsy, but they, Carmelo was like, yeah, Giannis was like coming at me, you know, he was like ready to compete. And so I just think he always had that, but he had to practice the mean mug and the scowl. You know, we published that excerpt last week on the ringer.com about him being in the mirror and flexing and, you know, just trying to be mean. And, you know, as Skip Robinson, who looked after him, he was a buck staffer that worked in um, player development. He was like, he had to practice it because he's not that guy. He's a very nice gentleman. So I think Jabari coming in and there being some competition really showed Giannis like, I can't have these people thinking I'm just this adorable smoothie king. I can't have these people thinking I'm soft because I come from Greece. You know, like I have to be mean. And um, it's funny because he gets like meaner and meaner every year. And then he like the moment where he dunks on Ben Simmons says he's a fucking baby. I like lost it. I just like lost it over here because this is a guy that practiced to scowl in the mirror, you know, and he would flex his biceps after 10 reps. Like, do we see any difference? Is there any growth? You know, and so it's just it's. He, he has this fire in him. He's always wanted to be the best. It's not good enough to just be there. There's just, that's just not him. You have a pretty, defi- it's funny. When I asked you that question, I figured Jabari was a possible answer. I, I thought you were going to go with Jason Kidd, who I imagine oh, has yeah. to be no, no lower than second or third on that list because <laughs> you literally have in the book that, you know, I want to say it was that, Jason Kidd called Giannis out for a defensive lapse and Giannis was like, coach, that wasn't my fault. And Jason Kidd was like, yes, it is. And then they went back and watched film and Jason Kidd was legitimately wrong. It wasn't Giannis' fault. So Giannis was right. And then Kidd benched him for the whole second half anyway, I think. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. so then Giannis was like extra angry about that. And then right. came back and was like dunking on fools like immediately after. So right. if he's not first on that list, maybe Jabari, <laughs> maybe Jabari's <laughs> first on the list. And Jason Kidd, I mean, Jason Kidd, the book is worth the the cost, <laughs> if, if only for the Jason Kidd anecdotes, which like, I don't know how I feel about it. Like, I know that there's all sorts of reasons to not necessarily want Jason Kidd to be your coach. Um, basketball reasons, non-basketball reasons. Um, which I think are, are, are well-founded and fair for, for people that have that opinion. Um, but yeah, the, this book, I mean, it's like very maniacal sort of stuff that Jason Kidd does that uh, people, I think, rightfully call them mind games. But you can't look at some of what Giannis is able to do and not credit Jason Kidd for at least some of kind of his playing style with regards to kids seeing the potential for him to become a ball handler, a seven-foot-tall ball handler, which... You don't generally see that for even if it may be hindered one aspect of Giannis's game that still has really not rounded out fully rounded out at all. Maybe it regressed because of what Jason Kidd did. He sure as hell developed his inside game, which now, you know, maybe makes him the most unstoppable player in the league. Um, you know, so it, it, it's very interesting because I kind of feel like there's plenty in there for you to hate Jason Kidd for. Um, certainly certain people, um, some of whom are basically out of the league would argue that they're maybe out of the league because of it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very, very interesting kind of maybe not psychoanalysis, but very close up look at Jason Kidd and the way he coached that team, uh, over the course of Giannis's first couple of years. So very interesting from that standpoint. Um, I can't help but think about the, the Batman and Robin thing in light of obviously that duo has come up a lot the last couple weeks Uh, i think kendrick perkins in particular has talked about it in relation to chris middleton um and what's interesting about that is that Giannis was like super i'm the guy on this team about the jabari parker thing and there was certainly some competitiveness between he and middleton at the beginning and he said that even the last couple weeks but it it definitely seemed to fade over time it seems like Giannis kind of doesn't give a damn who's 
really given the credit as long as the team is winning at this level. It really doesn't seem like he's, he obviously is hungry for that title if it means that they'll win. But if he feels like there's someone that can help just as much as he is, he really doesn't seem to care. Um, what, what has your take been on kind of when you watch maybe Middleton close out a game for them? Does it signify anything to you? Or is it just something that you just kind of assume he just wants to win at all costs? Well, I mean, I just, so I'm thinking of two things. One of them is Sterling Brown, you know, the former teammate. And I asked him like, what is the biggest growth in Giannis that you've seen? Um, and this was obviously last year um, when I got him before the pandemic. And he was like, he listens to his teammates. It's it's not that he didn't before. It's just Giannis always had this idea of like, I can, I, with my work ethic and, and leading by example, I can will us to victory. And now it's, it's just being open to just seeing and listening to other people. And, and that's leadership, you know? Mm. And I'm thinking of the scene where Jason Kidd, so to back up for context, um, Giannis hated speaking up. He hated talking. Um, Jason Kidd was like, I'm trying to make you into a point guard, a.k.a. talking is like the number one thing you need to do. Um, And so that was just a rough transition for Giannis. So one of the things um, is in the film room, Jason would humiliate people and be like, well, what were you doing here? And it's clear, like, okay, the player screwed up. He had no idea what he was doing here, hence the screw up. But having to articulate that out loud is so embarrassing. Sure. Um, it's very it's very like college program. So kid wants Giannis to assume this alpha point guard role. I'm the best player on the team. But Giannis is never going to say that, right? That's not his thing. He just wants to show it. Um, it's that same Jabari. I'm going to show that I'm better and I'm the guy. So kid was like, who thinks that Chris is the best player on the team? Or who who's the best player on the team? He said something like that. I can't remember that on the book in front of me. And everyone's just like really silent because everyone knows that Chris is the leading scorer, but obviously Giannis is butting into a superstar himself. And kid is this is a mind game that kid is doing because he he's looking at Giannis without saying Giannis, tell me. He wants Giannis to say it on his own. And Tyler Ennis and a bunch of people are like, come on, Giannis, just speak up. Like, let's get through this so we could go home. And Giannis just is the only one that doesn't say anything. He doesn't raise his hand. Chris, um, Jason starts goading him. Oh, I think Chris is. He's leading the team and blah, blah, blah. And then Giannis finally blurts it out so we can move on. It's like, I am because I think I'm the best. That's why I didn't say anything. And um, it was a real moment of, you know, okay, you you say you're that top guy. Now tell me. And then now you have no choice but to show it on the floor because you just said it to right. your team. So you can't, you can't have any lapses after this. You can't be weak after this. You can't not lead us because you just told your teammates that you're the guy. So I think that was a real big turning point. And I, asked, I, I would say like 10 people I asked about that same scene and they all recounted it in in this like, God, we were just waiting for Giannis to say something. You know, it was <laughs> I could just like feel the tension. And, um, so a lot of people identified that as like the big moment of him assuming that. However, to your point, he is so happy for Middleton's success. They have been through so much with this organization. He respects Chris as a human, as a person, as a man, as a friend. Um, you can tell Giannis believes in Chris, even when Chris is missing. They have a wonderful relationship. And just because Giannis spoke up in that moment doesn't mean that he doesn't, you know, value Chris. He knows that to win, he needs Chris and he needs people like Pat, you know, and and you see there are moments where Giannis just kicks it to Pat. And I'm like, okay, I want you to go to the basket. But again, leadership, you trust your teammates. So I think he's grown a lot in that. Yeah. I mean, and even if there were hard feelings, I imagine that a lot of those wash away, all of them probably wash away after last Tuesday. So, right. um, <laughs> you know, it, it, it was just, to me, it was fascinating to see that. Cause I immediately, you and I both know Jeff Perlman and he wrote a book on Kobe and Shaq and it's like, yeah. man, that would have been awkward as hell if uh, <laughs> Phil Jackson had just thrown that question out there for the masses. Who do you guys right? think is the best player on the team, Shaq or Kobe, you know, and like oh my God. just how awkward that would have been. But obviously to be able to ask that question and have folks coexist and play off each other after, you know, kid, kid was making it uncomfortable on purpose, I think. And that's where I'm saying, I think you have to give some credit there. There probably becomes a point where it's not always healthy or it's not always productive or it gets to a point where it's no longer productive. But, um, but yeah, there's certain things that, you know, you need Giannis to speak up if you're going to have him play that role on your team, at least some, maybe not all the time, but at least some. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. 
Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club. The wait is over. The shy is back on Paramount Plus, and the stakes have never been higher. Everything changes on the South Side when a new threat comes to power in the Showtime original series from Emmy winner Lena Waithe. Battle lines will be drawn, alliances will shift, and danger lies around every corner, leaving everyone to wonder who they can trust. Visit ParamountPlus.com slash shot to get a 50% discount off the Paramount Plus with Showtime annual plan. Offer ends July 14th. Subscription auto-renews. Restrictions apply. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. So I can tell you definitively the part for me that was, if it was toughest to read, and this is on a personal level, you know this about me, um, I've lost both of my parents really, really unexpectedly. So to read the part about Giannis and how he learned that he lost his father, um, and not just that part of it, but I remember having to be the one to relay it to my younger sister that we'd lost each of our, our parents. Mm-hmm. So hearing about how Giannis was dealing with that part of it hurt me to read it. It was it, it's, just, it's just brutal uh, for anybody to go through that, losing a parent that young. Um, how did losing his dad change him? And I guess in some ways, without trying to be too cute with how I'm asking this, how did it maybe not change him given some of the things that he was already doing for the family to step up for the family, um, obviously as the, the provider financially, and also I think on some level emotionally when he could? Um, how did you feel like that instance changed him? Yeah, thank you for sharing that, Chris. Um, first, I think Giannis felt like he had overcome so much to that point that it was like unfathomable that this could happen. And it changed him because he felt like, I thought nothing could get us. I thought that I had overcome the worst. Hmm. And it was like, it was just complete shock that this could, you know, he he thought the worst was over. Um, but I think it made him less afraid because the worst thing ever that could happen, happened. Yeah. And he, he did not fear anything after that point because he endured it. It's here. It's always going to be like this now. And so I think it created just a fearlessness in him. And I'm not saying that in like a storybook way. I'm just saying like that that's the fact that the matter is the worst thing that happened to him happened. And so you don't fear that thing happening. Um, I know personally, I always have that fear about my own parents. And I I just so I really related to that. Um, The other thing, a lot of the people I talked to that were close to him just said he kind of just stopped talking for a bit. He hardened a bit. Um, And. You know, Jason Terry, I believe, yeah, it was Jason Terry. They had a game a couple of weeks later or something. And he was just the way he described Giannis as like being there, but not being there. It was just very eerie. He he was just, he was just so down, but not in a crying way, but just like not fully being there. And it hurt so much for him to have that career game where he wrote, this is for daddy on the ball and have his dad not be there. You know, I have all these images in my head of Charles celebrating Giannis. Like the Bucks used to have these watch parties in the condominiums that a lot of the players stayed at. And when the Bucks were on the road, they'd gather the the family there so they could bring them pizza and just make them feel welcome. And Charles would just get so animated, like when Giannis would be on TV and like scoring, and he would just go high five everyone. And um, you know, he 
Charles would like clean Giannis's apartment and stuff when he was gone. So that he'd come back and he'd, he'd feel good about, you know, the, it being spotless. And so it's just, it's hard because the brothers are thinking of all these moments and it's each one processes them differently. And I thought the way that Alex talked about it really related to how I imagine Giannis felt because Alex said to me, um, it's like you have shoes, right? Everybody has shoes. And then one day you don't have shoes. And he describes that as how it is. And we, shoes are a, a motif in the book. We've got the, the fact that he had to share shoes early on. They only had so many in the family. I have the anecdote about the rookie year, Giannis refused to wear new shoes. He he broke through two for all 82 games that first year. So shoes are kind. And then, and then at the end, when he has his own shoes. So shoes are kind of the steady theme. So I thought it was just so revealing that that's the metaphor that comes to Alex's mind mm. when he thinks about what it's like to not have the debt. So it definitely changed them. But then, you know, as I was in their basement, the family's basement, I saw this beautiful portrait that said, I am my father's legacy. And it's this beautiful blue portrait of all the brothers, including Francis, the one that was left behind. And, you know, so Giannis and, and they carry that. I am my father's legacy. So it's it's inspiring. And so I think it is no accident and um, perhaps even more meaningful that Giannis becomes a father himself in the aftermath of losing his father. And he's always sort of been that father figure for his own brothers, as you just alluded to. But being your own, being your being a father yourself and still grieving the loss of your own dad is it's just yeah. very interesting i feel like Giannis has lived so many lives before age 26 which is crazy and you, you referencing his age kind of takes me to the at least what i think will be the, the last question for you um <laughs> within the span of what four or five maybe six weeks at most um i think a lot of us and the NBA media, I would say more NBA Twitter fandom. Uh, at age 26, Giannis has gone from people thinking that he was kind of crowned too early. Mm-hmm. You know, I would say after that game five against Brooklyn, where, you know, Kevin Durant is basically fending for himself and his whole team uh, and still, you know, looking like he's going to come out on top in that series against Milwaukee without. Kyrie Irving with the one-legged James Harden. Uh, and Giannis, I can't remember what he had in that game five, but it was something like 34, some some crazy stat line, but not coming through at the end of the game in a way that we would expect a superstar to close out a game. So it's like, oh, wow, Giannis is going to fall through again for the third straight year. Um, so went from that thought to then the Bucks coming back to win that series. And then Giannis getting hurt in the next series and thinking, oh, wow, we might see the Hawks get to the finals. It's not going to happen for them now either. And, you know, Budenholzer on the hot seat, probably going to get fired. Then the Bucks win that series. And, <laughs> and then thinking, at least me thinking that Giannis is, has no chance of playing the first game or two in the finals. I remember, you know, if you go back several weeks, Michael Pina and I were on this podcast. I remember saying, Michael, you're talking really definitively as if you know Giannis is out for a supposed season. He's like, because he probably is. That obviously was not the case. He played the entire finals. He was incredible for virtually the entire finals. Finishes with the 50 ball. A couple of the craziest blocks you'll ever see. A couple of the craziest defensive plays you'll ever see. So we've kind of done, I wouldn't say a 180 here. And I wouldn't say we, including everybody, but... Um, the narrative has shifted a lot for this man in the span of a couple weeks. And not just that, but at age 26, which is an age earlier than Michael Jordan won his first title, than LeBron won his first title, than Shaq won his first title. Um, this is still like you're going into your peak normally around this age. Uh, but it's also a weird place because I don't think people necessarily expect the Bucks to repeat next year. I don't think they're going to go in as favorites. I think it's well established that had Brooklyn been healthy, they probably beat Milwaukee. Um, what do you see as his next step here? And, you know, if they do somehow get next year or the year after or what have you, like, where does this put this man? I, I know the legacy question is really played out, but for someone that, I mean, it didn't really dawn on me until he said it in the press conference last Tuesday. He's like, man, I wish I could go back in time and win rookie of the year because I would have all the damn awards. And he would. I mean, he would have two MVPs, rookie of the year, most improved, all-star MVP, finals MVP, 
Defensive Player of the Year. I mean, it's a really incredible resume to have, especially when you consider that he's won MVP twice. And that he basically had a season that was worthy of that conversation this year. I think Jokic deserved it, but you know, his numbers weren't that far off from what he did the last two years. So where 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 what are we looking at for Giannis's next step here? And going back to what we talked about earlier with the hunger, but also being content. Um he he sounded like he had a big exhale last week. I, I don't have any doubt that he wants more, but what do you see as his next step now? Yeah, I, you know, I think obviously he's aware that this was a very special circumstance that they did this and it's, you know, who's going to say they're going to win another one. I don't know, but even if he doesn't, he has solidified himself as one of the all time greats. I do think there's more MVPs in him. I mean, it's funny, like early in the season, I was like, he's better than he was <laughs> like and people are just sick of him you know like he, he i would have at one point i was like he should be the mvp like is it possible that he's better it was almost like i was afraid to say it out loud because you just get crucified you know but he really was that good um so i think there's more there personally i think that Giannis is going to change in terms of using his voice and platform um hmm. I, I don't know what the NBA is going to do, if they're going to choose to market him or international people more. I have no idea. That's something they need to do a better job at. Like, I don't know anything about Joker. I don't know anything about Luca. Um, this is crazy that we have these top three people we don't really know anything about. To me, that's a marketing problem. But I think personally with Giannis, as you know, voice in itself is a motif in this book, whether it's talking about race, not talking about race, speaking up as point guard, not speaking up as point guard coming into his own and his voice and into his own as a man, as a human is a very big theme. And you're looking at his age. So I think that he is going to continue to mature as the person and the voice. And, you know, I talked with a lot of um, Nigerian journalists and people that want him to have a bigger connection there and want him to do more outreach there. And you don't necessarily have to play for the national team, but there's just, there's, people there that are dying for a bigger connection or at least for Giannis to say more I mean he just kind of gave snippets oh yeah I grew up with a Nigerian home and you know I found that you know obviously Fufu was like a big deal and they love that but again like their needs not their needs that's just my opinion but I do think that as he gets older and more comfortable in the spotlight because he is a deeply private person I think there's just so much room and time and space for him to share more of himself without losing that anonymity that he cherishes and that bond and closeness with his very, very, very tight inner circle. Yeah, no, you do have that. um, I wouldn't call it awkward, but that little dance that he does seemingly with with Nigeria and having gone to to spend, was it a couple of weeks in Africa to play some games there? Yeah. And that he he was still kind of introducing himself as Greek, which right. was interesting because even even with that, there were moments in the book where the Nasus, I can't remember what event it was, where he had the flag, the Greek flag there. And it, oh, at the it, draft. It, yeah, and it didn't seem that Giannis necessarily wanted him to do that. Um, yeah. So it's, a, it, you know, it, I don't know. that that it, As you talk about themes and motifs, that was one that was, was pretty uh, ever-present throughout the book, which was really interesting, but... Um, Mirren, I, I couldn't say thank you enough for, for how much time you've given me with this and the, the level of detail, which, I mean, if you feel like this is a lot, what we just discussed, the book is tenfold, more than tenfold, uh, with regards to how much detail there is on this man, on his life, on his beautiful family, on his journey, which, um, I really do think is singular, not just for the NBA, but for sports generally, um, so so please, I would encourage everybody to read it as closely as I did so I could ask Miran some good questions, hopefully. Um, <laughs> but Miran, thank you so much for joining me and, and good luck with the book. I, I couldn't be happier for you as someone that went through this at the same time I did is trying to finish mine. But I'm extremely happy for you and, and really appreciate you making the time for us today. Thank you, Chris. I was literally just about to say, can you please drop the pre-order for your next book? Next because week. Some of, some of us are trying to buy 10 copies. So oh, just let me know. I'm putting it in my calendar. You let me know when it's dropping. Well, I appreciate that. It, it, it should be out next week. We're finalizing the link for it this oh. week. 
the, the pre-sale will be out next week for the Knicks book Yay. that I'm writing on the 90s Knicks. But I, I know my SI family will hate me for sitting here plugging our books this much. Um, so let me, <laughs> let me at least plug uh, where you can reach us. Uh, we are at openfloormail.com at gmail.com again open floor mail at gmail.com we'll obviously have episodes coming up hopefully on the draft but also on nba free agency which will open next week so please stay locked here for that uh when michael rohan and myself will be back to discuss all that stuff um thank you so much for listening and we will see you soon and hear from you soon thank you From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Spentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. The wait is over. The shy is back on Paramount Plus, and the stakes have never been higher. Everything changes on the South Side when a new threat comes to power in the Showtime original series from Emmy winner Lena Waithe. Battle lines will be drawn, alliances will shift, and danger lies around every corner, leaving everyone to wonder who they can trust. Visit ParamountPlus.com slash the shot to get a 50% discount off the Paramount Plus with Showtime annual plan. Offer ends July 14th. Subscription auto-renews. Restrictions apply. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details.